Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good Father Brendan Kilcoyne in Athenry, County Galway. I hope all is going well for you insofar as it can be at the moment. Not a great scene for us in the country at the moment. If you're, you're listening in from outside, you know, our numbers are pretty bad. The numbers in hospital and so on. Anyway, that's the broader context. I was hoping to just chat to you really about this thing of the call from God. It's absolutely crucial. It's really, really important if we're serious about what we're doing of hearing God, being heard by God, the meeting between the individual and God. And the main purpose of my talk is to invite you again to that meeting. Now, if we just look, because uh, lately you might have noticed I'm very much following the readings from the Mass, from the Sunday Mass. Well, I'm, I'm a secular priest. I'm a diocesan priest. I'm in a parish, and this is a big part of my life. I mean, the Mass is a, an absolutely huge part of any Catholic's life, all the more so of a priest. But you, you know, you feel it very much in the parish, you know, where very much a part of your office is providing the Mass to your parishioners, which at the moment we're just doing on the webcam and on the local radio. And in that first reading from the, the, the book of Samuel, you have that wonderful moment, that oft-told story of the call. It really is the loveliest story where God is calling Samuel. Now, just one or two points of interest. Samuel has been given by his parents to the temple, the service of the temple under the priest Eli in gratitude for his having been born because his mother Hannah so yearned for a son and she begged God for a son to the extent that in the throes of her prayer in the temple she was thought to be drunk by Eli the priest and she did bear a son and called him Samuel and the name Samuel now the L part is telling because L always refers to God right the Jews didn't call God by his name, but El is one of the names under which they would refer to him. The name Samuel comes from the words El for God and Shem for name, but actually what it means here, it's a passive participle, what it means here is heard by God because Hannah's prayer, his mother Hannah, was heard by God and Samuel is the result. And he serves the priest Eli. Now, Eli is Eli, El, God, E, my God, Eli. So God is buried in the names of these two men straight away. God is a part of their name. That's also the case, by the way, with Isaiah, Jeremiah and Jesus' name, Yeshua. But we'll get to that another time. Uh, that's a, di a different way of referring to God. And so God is calling Samuel because they're sleeping in the temple, right? They're, they're serving the temple and they're sleeping in there. And God is calling Samuel. And Samuel wakes up and he thinks that Eli, his master, has called him. And he goes over to Eli. And the old man is probably annoyed at his sleep being disturbed by the boy. And he says, no, no, go back to sleep. I didn't call you. And God calls him again and Samuel goes to Eli and he says, here I am. And Eli crossly, you would imagine, says, no, 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 go, go back to sleep, go back to sleep. And the third time Eli realizes what's going on and he says to him, you go back 
And he says, if the voice calls you again, say, here I am, Lord. The Lord called Samuel and Samuel answers him. And it's a beautiful moment because the boy understandably and humanly mistakes the voice of God for the voice of his human master. Now, you know, in the last talk a week ago, I invited you to go back and to look at the book of your life and to see where there were all sorts of signs left for you by God, where God had left his mark in a whole load of different ways. And I'm really inviting you again today to do the the same thing, but maybe to take it a step further and giving a few more practical suggestions. I suppose what I'm really doing is inviting you to the life of prayer, a life I have always found difficult. I'll be straight with you about that. You might remember my mentioning this before at the end of the book of Deuteronomy where the writer says uh, in the inspired text, God says really, that never again will there be a prophet like Moses who knew the Lord face to face. It's a great tribute that he knew the Lord face to face. Tremendous. But of course, Jesus supersedes that because Jesus is God. And in Jesus... God and man are reconciled and know each other profoundly, more than face to face. Now, the invitation to you to know God in that way, you can know God better than Moses knew God. Moses spoke to God in the burning bush, but you have the burning bush in your heart through your baptism. You were anointed as Christ was anointed priest, prophet and king. You're a member of Christ. You're a living stone in the body that is the church, the body of Christ. You are drawn into the life of the Trinity. You're invited into the life of the Trinity. You're invited into a divine conversation. You're invited into a life of prayer. You are called to a life of prayer. That's very much on my mind as I talk to you this evening, is that call in Samuel. And then if you go on to the gospel, you see the famous moment where Jesus meets Peter. And he renames him and he gives him a nickname, if you like, a divinely ordained nickname. He looks at him hard, the gospel says, and he says, you're not, you're not Simon, you're, you're Kephas, you're the rock. And just imagine that as a nickname. I think there was actually, wasn't there an American wrestler called the rock? It's a good nickname. It's a powerful name. The rock. It wasn't a Plato who called Aristotle, his pupil, Noose. Brain. It's a playful nickname by the master, and yet to his new student, and yet it says something profound. He's telling Simon something. Now, Peter, he's telling him something. Kephas. In Greek, Petros, Peter. And so God is calling you in that way, and you may be mistaking that call for other things. One of the things, one of the great tragedies in life is that there are people out there called to the priesthood, to the religious life, to married life, and they are mistaking the call. They're mistaking the call. There are people out there who can't stop chasing the people they fancy, and they don't realise that it's God. It's not just nature who's calling them, it's God who's calling them. And they don't listen, they don't discern the voices. They think they know themselves, but they don't know themselves. God knows them. There are people out there who think, you know, who, who are ambitious to do great things in the world, 
And some people, that is what they're called to do. And others don't realise that that ambition, what seems to be a human ambition, is really a call from God to work in his field. Now, like I, I, I cannot emphasise too strongly the extent of the tragedy when a vocation is ignored, because a vocation goes to the core of the person. And the symbol of that in the first reading is that Samuel, his very name speaks of God. God has stamped him as his property, as it were, already. Eli, the same. They are of God. They belong to God. It's like, if you could read it, you have a barcode, so to speak, on your soul since baptism, reinforced by confirmation. It's like a barcode, and the theologians call it an ontological character or mark. It's something that is, even if nobody can see it, like your soul. And it is a change in the core of you as a person, right in the nuclear core. And God has stamped his name there. You are in the most beautiful and profound sense his property. You are his slave. But it's a beautiful thing to be a slave of God. To be a slave of God is to be brought into the family. It is to be brought into the family. You are invited into the life of the Trinity. You can spend your life fighting that which some do. And I refer you, I mean, the classic poem on this is an amazing poem is Francis Thompson, The Hound of Heaven. And if you haven't read it, you really should read it. A very long poem. Now, it's a Victorian poem and you may find the style a bit off-putting, a bit dated or whatever. But it's an extremely passionate poem detailing the way in which a man struggles his whole life with God. He wrestles like Jacob with the angel. He wrestles with the angel. He wrestles with God. And you're doing that. And you're fighting him off. The best thing that can happen is that he, he smites you on the thigh or on the hip, as he did with Jacob, and he left him unable to walk. You're better off if you come out of this wounded. You're better off if you sicken from it, so to speak. The worst thing in the world can be that you become satisfied with the world. Because the world will betray you. And the day you're buried, my friend, not a bird will stir in the trees. Not a blade of grass will turn a different way. Now, if you think I'm being cruel, you have to get this. All the saints warn us about this. The scriptures warn us about this. Do not become proud in your youth. Do not think that you have a hold on this forever because you don't. And you're daft if you fall for that line. You're like those poor, simple Aboriginal people who are cheated of their land by European settlers for glass beads and a few iron utensils. You're being cheated. You're giving up your birthright, as the scriptures say, for a mess of pottage. You're handing over something priceless. And for what? Now, I know you may think I'm coming on here like a 1930s missionary, but maybe there's a time for that, you know. Maybe there's a time for that. There's a story told in the Gaeltacht. The Gaeltacht is the Irish-speaking part of the west of Ireland. And there's a story told in it about a famous missionary priest. Uh, he was a native Irish speaker and a gifted uh, speaker, a redemptorist. He's absolutely gifted speaker. But um, one of his introductions, if you like, which was very sensational, was that he would wait until everyone was seated in the church and then he would step in front of the congregation. 
and then he would slowly take the crucifix from around his neck and he would wrap the chain around the crucifix and then he would lift it up and he would fling it at the floor and it would bounce on the floor. And the whole congregation would start and sit back in their seats aghast at the sacrilege at the hands of a priest. And he would look at the congregation and the tension would build and build. And he would look at the congregation and he would say, there he is. Stand on him. Kick him. Spit on him. And then the voice would raise, because that's what you're doing anyway. And he was off. Oh, it was high theatre. People would walk and cycle miles to hear that man. I just ask you to stop telling lies to yourself. That's all I'm asking you to do. I think there's tremendous dignity in somebody saying, I, I know it's you calling me. He says to God, I know it's you calling me. I know I'm named for you. I know I'm meant for you. And I reject it. I walk away from it. You can see something like that at the end of the portrait of uh, the artist as a young man by James Joyce. Something like that. It's a very nuanced uh, thing and um, it maybe needs a more careful treatment than that, but it's something very similar. It is a deliberate rejection of the possibility of God's call and a decision to follow a different road, to rebel, in short. Now, I also would point out to you that even if you don't have a vocation to the priesthood or the religious life, you very likely have a vocation to marriage, and that is absolutely crucial. There are few things as important as giving life and, crucially, bringing up children. The biological fathering or mothering of children, as great as it is, is nothing compared to the spiritual fathering and mothering. Because you just consider, you consider that God is the perfect father. The only perfect father is God. God is perfect in everything. And God is pure spirit. So the perfect fatherhood is spiritual fatherhood. Keep that in mind when you consider that Joseph was in a very real sense the father of Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph was. I'm looking at a statue of him just as I talk. Joseph in a very real sense, was a father to Jesus. The true fatherhood is spiritual, and Joseph partook in the fatherhood of the Father as he raised Jesus. So that's a tremendous vocation. So whatever he's calling you to do, you need to discern and stop mistaking the voice for somebody else's voice, and stop thinking it's the world that deserves your attention, when it's God that deserves your attention. Listen to me, listen to me. This is so short. This present life is nothing. It's a flick of the wrist. It's a click of the fingers, a blink of the eye in the vast sea of eternity. You will spend eternity with God or not. Please God, it will be with God. It's your call. I'm not threatening you. It's your call. Nobody with an ounce of sense would choose the opposite. If you believe in God, you want to be with God forever. If you're going to be with God forever, don't you think you should be practicing? Now here I want to make a pitch again, shamelessly make a pitch again, because I have an agenda here. I'm coming to this with a naked agenda and no apology. I want to make a pitch here for the practice of adoration of the Eucharist. I've read a few biographies recently of a saint I didn't know well, St. Philip Neri. Neri is the great second apostle of Rome, Peter being the first. 
And Neri is just a marvellous scent. He's just a marvellous scent. And I'm just struck in reading. I've just finished the biography of him by Paul Turks, uh, a priest of the oratory. And it's just a wonderful, I mean, I, I just raced through it. I enjoyed it so much. And one of the things I was struck by is that Philip's face was often radiant from prayer. His face was actually quite radiant and he smelled beautifully. And those who knew him, the multitude of witnesses in his process for canonization, would all have said that it came from a deeply holy life which was soaked in prayer. Philip pioneered the Quarantore, the 40 hours adoration. And adoration now is becoming part of the fight back. Now, I don't mean to phrase it so negatively, but you know what I mean. Of the Catholic goodness, we won't say restoration, uh, nothing so grand, but of the Catholic uh, refusal to die, let's put it that way, in the Western world. And adoration is big in Ireland at the moment, and it's a wonderful thing to see. It's where people spend time with God face to face. And it's a tremendous privilege. I mean, I, I know this is regarded as dire theology nowadays, and it's maybe a dated way of looking at it, but honestly, the theology of the prisoner in the tabernacle, as it was called, which was disdained and despised and laughed at later, I would consider it again if I were you. For our sake, God becomes man. Can you imagine how humbling that is for God? Can you imagine the profundity of the humility on God's part to become man. And then Jesus is present to us under the aspect as bread, which is the most ordinary, the most humble thing. And we keep the bread for the last thousand years anyway, round or about, we keep it in a tabernacle, in a special reliquary, sort of a miniature of the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and the manna were kept. We keep the host. In the past, people gave their wedding rings, they gave All-Ireland hurling medals, they gave uh, gold sovereigns to be used to line the inside of tabernacles because the inside was seen by God. It was for God. God could see what they had done in the same way as, as the old Irish chalices were often beautifully decorated on the bottom because God could see them, the medieval cathedrals, often richly decorated on the highest turrets, because God can see it. And I think we're absolutely crazy to be neglecting and not profiting from something that's being handed to us. For our sake, he is imprisoned in the tabernacle. For our sake, he's the divine prisoner. He's there in Chucky. He's in the Huskow. He's in Clink. He's in a richly decorated mini Mount Joy, Mount Joy being one of Ireland's more notorious prisons. There's Jesus, locked up for you, for our sake, at your disposal. And you're there running to your earthly master, thinking that's what's calling you. The world, your career, money, the whole bit. No, no, it's God that's calling you. God is calling you. And you need to answer. And I use the word need deliberately. God does not need you. He does not need me. He needs nothing. You have been created out of pure love. Pure love. You are gratuitous. You are the product of grace and favour. God does not need you, but God loves you passionately. And for you, he's there, stuck in that tabernacle. 
I'm just saying, would the world end if you took a few minutes to go in? Let's put it this way. Let's keep this really basic, okay? Let's say that you just cannot be bothered trying to pray. It drives you crazy. Okay, here's the thing, especially if you're male. Males tend to be very physical about these things. Go into the church, genuflect in front of the tabernacle, and do it properly so your right knee goes right to the floor. Not a little curtsy. You know, little Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Just genuflect properly. Your knee to the floor. And then get up, cross yourself and walk back out. You have prayed at least twice there. You prayed when you genuflected. Because you made a physical show of obeisance, of love and reverence and obedience to God. You saluted the prisoner. You visited him in prison, so to speak. And then you walk back out the door and you have prayed. You cross yourself, you have prayed. It's a prayer to the Trinity. And you have prayed with your body, which is good because you are physical. C.S. Lewis talks about this. He talks about this with people who, who don't believe. Uh, he was a Protestant. People who don't believe you should kneel in church. But he said, we're physical beings. We're not angels. We're not pure spirit. What we do with our bodies affects our minds. The state of our minds will be reflected in our bodies. No, 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 no. You pray with your body as well as with your mind and your heart. You pray with your body. Go in and spend time with them. Start spending a very little time with them. I read somewhere of one French army officer, I think it was, didn't feel he was much good at prayer, but what he used to do, this is years and years ago, when there was nobody in the church, he would go in, he would click his heels, stand to attention and salute. And he would remain like that for maybe half an hour at the salute in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I would say that man was was not far from sanctity. That is a beautiful simplicity and a profound understanding of what he was doing and who was present in the tabernacle and of the nature of prayer. Because prayer means different things with different people, but it is always, whether physical or mental or emotional or spiritual, it is always talking to God. It is communication with God, face to face. Now, if God respects your physicality enough to be physically present to you, you show your respect for that by being physically present to him. I mean, say what you like, emails, texts, all that. Nothing beats a handwritten letter, isn't that true? Nothing still to this day beats the magic of a handwritten letter. In the same way, nothing beats a visit. We give something physically of ourselves to others. With a letter at a distance, even a phone call, which is the sound of our voice, with a visit, all the better with our physical presence. God is in your name. Whether you know it or not, you're named for him. You are named for him and you belong to him. And what's in you, your soul knows where it came from. It knows where it came from and it's calling to him the whole time. So I would suggest that you put yourself in the place of Samuel there. Put yourself in the place of little Samuel listening to the call of God. I really feel that unless we're willing to be, as they say in Ireland, dog thick, and I mean bloody minded, I mean really stubborn and bloody minded about this, we will dissolve into the world and the faith will disappear in Ireland. I really worry about that. 
All this week there has been understandably a great deal of talk and discussion about the whole phenomenon of the mother and child homes in Ireland in the past where pregnant outside of wedlock went to have their children. Those homes were uh, conducted by the state but usually manned by Catholic uh, religious. Uh, Actually homes like that existed to my knowledge in Britain as well run by the state. And while there was a whole lot of unjust and predictable uh, attacks on the church and and criticism, at the same time there was quite a bit of very just and fair-minded discussion. And our biggest mistake in the past in this country wasn't that we oppressed the Irish people. We were part of the Irish people. Our biggest mistake was that we sold out. Uh, The historian Joseph Lee has commented, and Lee has a wonderful turn of phrase, that the parish priest of the 1930s was little more than a a strong farmer in a cassock. The priests were so imbued with the ethos of the class they came from that they were practically found it impossible to see past it. I think that was our biggest failure. We were not a sign of contradiction. There was far more achieved by the church that was good than is being talked about now. But that was a signal failure. And I believe that Father Flanagan noticed that and stated that when he was here. And when the bishops, he visited Ireland and the bishops asked him to have a look at some of the industrial schools, the reformatories. And he condemned them from a height and said they were unchristian. And both church and state angrily rejected his criticisms. Uh, this is Father Flanagan, the founder of Boys Town in America, who was a, a very famous, he was a star really, Spencer Tracy had played him in the film. That was our biggest problem. I mean, Flanagan was an example of what we could have been. He came from us too, but we sold out. A comment was made, a friend of mine has commented on this lately, is that uh, around was it the the time of the Ryan Report, which was a, a report on clerical abuse that came out about 15 years ago. Around that time, a communist organisation in Ireland joined the blistering criticism of the church that was going on, but pointed out the class-based nature of the abuse. It was a very interesting observation. So it just goes to show that even a stop clock can be right twice a day. Sorry, communists. That was a very interesting observation. Probably the rich didn't tend to be beaten quite as much. I don't know. I do suspect strongly that we sold out. And I'll tell you something else. If I were there at that time, I'd have sold out too. Because I know me. I'd have sold out too. My tattered bit of wisdom... You remember Yeats, an aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick. Unless soul clap its hands and sing and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. My tattered bit of wisdom has come to me only over years and mistakes and finally and eventually having the humility to learn, in some cases from people who didn't even share my faith. We sold out. And uh, I can't help thinking, and look, I'm allowing for all the tremendous things that the Irish Church achieved, and it did. But I can't help thinking uncomfortably about Big Jim Larkin, the Irish trade union organiser, roaring at the employers in O'Connell Street, you'll crucify Christ no longer on the streets of Dublin. A fantastic line. 
a remarkable line which hit home because of course uh, William Martin Murphy the leader of the Federation of Employers was a devout Catholic a Larkin statue is in O'Connell Street right outside what used to be Cleary's department store which was the flagship of William Martin Murphy's empire now, James Connolly, one of the founders of the state, always said that we were in great danger of achieving political freedom and having a situation where the only thing to change was the badge on the caps of the eviction agents. Instead of a crown, it would be a harp. And I wonder, is that true? It's a harsh judgment. The Irish state achieved a great deal. But John Waters is, is fantastic on this. And he insists that you can't understand any of this unless you go back to the famine. The famine is like, it's like the deluge. It's like the flood. You have before the famine and after. A million died, a million emigrated, and a country was left terrified of disorder, terrified of anything which threatened property or land or inheritance. Absolutely terrified. And that that continued and continued and continued in our country. I can only say as a priest that I am abjectly sorry for what we did wrong, insofar as that has any meaning. But I have to say to you again that I think the greatest wrong we did was to sell out. And we cannot be making that mistake again. It's God that's calling us. But we run to the mood of the times we run to our class origins. We run to the, the zeitgeist, to the spirit of the age. We run to an ideology. We run to money. And we say, here I am. But it's God who called, not William Martin Murphy and the Federation of Employers. And I'm not a communist, by the way. There's nothing Catholic and nothing right about not paying people a living wage. And I just fear that that lay at the core of what we did. I think our greatest fault was our worldliness. We kept mistaking the call. And we were proud of being greeted obsequiously in the marketplaces. We were proud of our cloth. And in one way, there was nothing wrong with that. But in another way, that's the path to hell. Our cloth is the cloth of the desolate, of the rejected, of the crucified Christ. We put on the ephod, the priestly garment. We put on the seamless robe. That is the robe for which the executioners will throw the dice. And they are getting ready. They're dicing already because the Irish church never had much in the way of ready cash. Not huge amounts. Nothing like America or Germany. Not huge amounts. But we have a lot of property. They're getting ready to come after the schools. They're dicing for the robe. And do you know something? I think we'd be nearly as well to let them have it. I think we need to start again. I honestly do think that we need to start again. Better to wander the roads in Yeats' phrase, uh, like an old beggar woman in all kinds of weather, than to be a lapdog again for the zeitgeist, for the spirit of the age, for the, the man, as they used to say in the 60s. Now, I know, you know, the one thing we learn from history is people don't learn from history. That's, as a history teacher, you'd run out of ways in which to say that differently to a class. People don't learn from history. But could we make an exception? Could we answer the voice of God now instead of running like a little poodle, a little lapdog to the rulers of the time, to the age? Here I am. I come to do your will. 
And I can assure you that master won't send us back to our bed to await the real call. We'll waste our lives, we'll waste our vocations, we'll waste the last best chance of the Irish Church. We're depending now for the future totally on the Holy Spirit and that is terrifying for us. We are terrified by it and I'm as terrified as you or anyone else by this. It is a terrible thing to be in the hands of the living God. It's a terrible thing to be just dependent on God and nothing else. It goes to the core of our faith, it goes to the core of our religion, but it's only a knee a fool, an idiot who thinks that that's easy. That's not easy. Everything in your human nature will rise up against it. Again, in Yeats's phrase, it's so much safer to add the halfpence to the pence and prayer to shivering prayer till you have dried the marrow from the bone. Now, how's this going to look? Because I'm saying to you, you know, if you want to meet God, go in, say a prayer, genuflect, cross yourself, start taking part in adoration, start doing this, start doing that. There are all other practical things that you can do. You don't need me to list them all off. But how do we do this? How are we now going to be church answering God when he calls Samuel, Samuel, you whom I named for myself, come here to me. How do we do that when for so long, and we're still at it, we are still at it. Well, there's no point in trying to do this from the top down. This will have to come from the bottom up, like every great renewal in the church. And that's nothing against the bishops. I'm not bishop bashing. I have nothing but contempt for that. That's not fair. The bishops have their job to do. We have to get on with ours. We have to start again listening to them. And we have to start preaching the word in season and out, the gospel. And we have to stop worrying about what the world thinks of us. Crikey, look, I'll tell you, I don't, I don't know if I could do this. I don't know if I could do this. I'm telling you straight. St. Philip Neri, the guy was so virtuous that he used to deliberately make an idiot of himself so that people wouldn't think highly of him. So he'd act the fool constantly. He'd make stupid mistakes. It was unbelievable what he'd go on with, to mortify himself. I mean, coming from a small village in the west of Ireland, I have the peasants' terror of being laughed at. I have the villagers' terror of being the butt of jokes. And it's a very Irish insecurity. And I don't know if I'm man enough for it. I don't know if I'm priest enough for it. I don't know if I'm able for it. Am I able to be a fool for God? Am I able to be despised? Am I able to be unworldly? to be regarded as impractical in the words of Yeats and yet to be thought an idler by the noisy set of bankers, schoolmasters and priests that's called the world. Aye, 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 aye. I, I don't know. I know me. And this, only the Holy Spirit can do this with me. If I have the generosity to be the kind of priest that's needed now and to learn old tricks at my age. I'm nearly 58. I mean, when I was a kid, I thought people who were 58 were absolutely banjaxed. Can an old dog learn new tricks? I don't know. I know God can do it, but will I let him do it? Because one can obstruct grace. You can obstruct grace. Do I have the courage to be an Egypt for Christ? To be a fool for Christ? To be the butt of jokes for Christ? Because it started quite some time ago, and it's very much here, the patronising smiles that some people will give you at best contemptuous glances from some mothers. Jeepers, it can be hard enough to take. We look back with nostalgia on when we were hated in the last two decades because at least we were taken seriously. Now we're going to be Egypts. 
We're going to lose the schools, and we will lose the schools one way or the other. We've lost them already, by the way. I'm making no judgment on teachers or on anything like that, so don't bracket me with that. There are a load of fantastic people doing fantastic work in the schools. I'm telling you that we're beaten. It's not their fault. We're beaten. It's partly our fault in the church authorities. It's partly the priesthood's fault. It is partly our fault. But this is huge. It is a huge cultural shift. And we're left in tatters. We've lost everything. We backed the wrong horse. We threw our lot so often in with the world. We didn't mean to. We didn't think we were. We thought we were answering the call when we heard the call. But so often, what we were answering was the call of the world. Can we now answer the call of Christ? I don't know. I mean, a real Catholic school. If we were to really run a real Catholic school, uh, well, I don't know. I suppose you'd take all the ones who were kicked out of all the other places. Wouldn't he do that? It wouldn't be a pushover. A real Catholic school would be... It'd be a good, strict school. I mean, it'd be a real school, a place of preparation for the world, for heaven, for death and heaven. A real Catholic school would be something, and the Catholic schools all have a bit of it in them. I know the school that I was in had a bit of it in it, and and loads of them did. But I don't know if we ever really, for a long time, had the courage to do the real thing. I mean, not to look at the league tables, to completely ignore the league tables. To refuse to feed our children into what Pierce called the murder machine. To genuinely and boldly prepare our students for death, judgment, heaven or hell. In other words, for human freedom. In other words, to live a fully and profoundly and truly human life. I mean, would we have the guts for that anymore? Would we have the courage to even enunciate it? She'd be locked up for child abuse, would you? But I'm telling you, I really do have a sense that we're at a crossroads. And the opportunity is here to really go back to the roots of our faith. And I'm not just being antiquarian about it, you know. I'm not saying, oh, the early church was everything. And the early church wasn't everything. It was very imperfect. I'm not going on like that. But I mean the roots of faith, the roots of our theology, the roots of our belief, which is a complete dependence on God, a complete identification with his will. Can we do that? That's what I'm putting up to you. I, I realise I'm probably ruining the evening for you. And if I have, I'm sorry by being so intense about it. Uh, look, you've probably picked up from what I'm saying that this is very personal as well, is that I really feel at a crossroads. And on top of that, I feel pathetic for being at a crossroads. Because the world tells me I shouldn't be at a crossroads at 58. You know, I should be looking forward to the classic retirement uh, comfortable retirement, all the rest of it. No. I reckon that I and most of the priests of my time will die in harness. I'll tell you how I want to die. This at least I can tell you. I'm good for this if nothing else. I'd like to drop dead on the road making a sick call or something. I'd like to go out with my boots on, clerically speaking, but not being clericalist. I'd like to die in the saddle. A lot of priests feel like that, you know. Leave your teeth in the altar like halfway through mass. You know, just keel over. Go with a bang. I'd like to keep going to the end. Now, I'm up for that. But am I up for taking this further? Am I up for spending the remaining years of my life when I should have been a venerable senior cleric? Am I up for being regarded as a pathetic has-been, a fool, an idiot who has wasted his life, uh, is just tolerated by society? Am I up for that? And will I, as some of the martyrs did at Tyburn, will I kiss the executioner's hands? Kiss the axe? Can I embrace this?
and tack into the wind with real humility? And the answer is no, I can't, but I want to. So you pray for me that I'll be given the grace and the other priests will be given the grace for this. I won't even call it a white martyrdom. It's not even that grand. It's a sort of a, oh, it's a kind of a, it's magnolia. Ireland's favourite colour. Yeah, a magnolia martyrdom. It's ordinary, it's pleasant, it's the shock of having to play the fool in the middle of the whole respectable uh, magnolia-tinted reality that we have created for ourselves. It's the shock of being the village idiot. I don't know what kind of martyrdom that is. You give it a colour. I was going to say that's what's ahead. Oh, it's here. It's here. Now you pray for me, right? You pray for me and I'll pray for you because we're going to have to pray each other into this. We have the grace to behave with the awful dignity of the clown, of the holy fool. Do we have the grace to put aside the opinions of the world and to despise them and to be despised by the world and as St. Philip said, to despise being despised and to just serve God directly, taking him at his word. That's the question for me. It's the question for all the priests at the moment. It's the question for all Catholics and it's the question for Catholic Ireland, what's left of it? And there's not much left of it. What's left of it? Have we the courage now to take this tremendous chance that's being handed to us? You hear him? Samuel, do you know which master to run to? I pray you do. God bless you. Have a great week. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>